Welcome to the PhD in Parenting Podcast. The podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts. This is Judith. And this is Erin. So this week we want to dig into a topic that I think we've kind of gestured toward more than once on this podcast without actually identifying it as such. Certainly the pandemic has brought a lot of new words and terminology into our parlance, but the term I'm thinking about today is what's known as toxic productivity. Now this is a concept that was in circulation before the pandemic, but it's definitely gained a lot of traction since we have been stuck in this shelter at home order, working from home, remote learning, and everything. Everything else. Yeah, if you remember, I, Aaron, I it mentioned in an earlier episode my love for the bullet journal. And so with that, I have a lot of exposure to ideas about productivity, and it's something that I'm really passionate about. And so I'm really excited about today's topic. But can you tell us a little bit more before we dive in into what actually is toxic about productivity? <laughs> right. Well, first, let's put it on the table. It's not an actual official diagnosis. It's a relatively new term, um, but I think the ideologies behind it are pretty old. According to Dr. Julie Smith, a psychologist, toxic productivity is the obsession with radical self-improvement above all else. No matter how productive you are, you're always left with that guilty feeling of not doing more. So let's stop right there. Um, you know, does any of that definition resonate with you at all regarding your work at home or in your career field? It absolutely does. I'm like I said, I'm a list maker. I get a lot of pleasure out of checking off boxes on my lists, and there's always another item on the list, especially working from home, you know, having the family, having a household. There's always additional items on the list, and I tend to have actually a hard time focusing on the boxes that I've checked off. And I tend to look at the boxes that I haven't checked off. And so it, this is definitely something that resonates with me. The sense of feeling guilty, the sense of like feeling that I should be doing more. You know, there's a lot to talk about there and I'm sure we'll get into it throughout the episode. But one of the things that really stands out to me in this context is how difficult sometimes it can be to just be with my kids and spend that time with the children and not think about the unchecked boxes on my list. And so that's a huge factor, I think, for me. How do you feel about that? What resonates most with you? Yeah, that is something I was thinking about as well. And, you know, I want to shift. I don't want to completely talk about the pandemic because I don't want this to become the pandemic podcast, although in some ways it has to be. But I was thinking about how my schedule is so different now that I'm working remotely. And at first, I thought that was going to be really liberating, right? I couldn't wait to work from home. This is something I've actually dreamed of for a long time to think about how so much of the work we do as professors can be done from home, right? The grading, the prepping. And the college I work at when I first started had a pretty strict schedule. We were expected to be on campus from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. They maintained business hours. And that got a little funky when I was teaching night classes. And I'll say more about that later. But now it's weird because I'm working from home. And in some ways, I feel pressured to do more work to prove that I am, you know, working really hard from home, that I'm getting everything done. And I want my supervisors to not only know that I'm online, but I feel like I need to reply to their emails. And a lot of times I see people writing things out at like 6am. But the weird thing is, I'm online at 630 replying to their email. And I feel like in some ways, this has become even more of a hectic workplace for me because I'm online now starting at 8 a.m. Once all my kids are out of the house, I am online, I'm ready to go, and I'm eliminating that 45 minute commute there and back. And I'm also eliminating that wasted time, right, of chit chat, going to get my coffee, stopping by and saying, right, saying hello, you know, I'm a pretty sociable person. And I used to have my rounds, you know, as I'd call it, I'd say hello to the folks working at the security desk. They were my friends, always uh, trading stories with them. You know how I am, right? And then I'd stop and maybe sometimes go talk to my supervisor who happens to be a literary person. And so then we'd talk about one thing related to work and then maybe have a 45 minute spiel about, you know, uh, dystopian literature or something like that. Right. So I feel like I've taken a lot of that out of my schedule because I worked so far away from home. Sometimes I would like treat myself to go out to lunch somewhere nice when I was working just to get out of the office. So that was maybe another 35 or 45 minute departure. Now I'm just at home and it's like, 
work, work, work. You know, I have really not the same level of distraction, I think, that I had in the office, which seems really weird and counterintuitive. So that's my roundabout way of thinking like now I feel like within this working from home, I feel like I'm working a lot more than I ever did. And I feel like in some in some sense, I'm working from about 8 a.m., um, until 8 p.m. at night. And so then I feel like that launches me into thinking back to the graduate school days too of how this idea that like in graduate school, there is a sense of do more, write more, more service, more committee work, teach all the classes you can, work all summer long. And so I feel like this is kind of in that familiar territory again of like we have to work to be the very, very best. Now more than ever, it's not that I'm out trying to learn a new language or, you know, make new kinds of foods, but it's it's like I feel like since I'm working from home, there is more of a focus on being really, really productive and proving that to my supervisors. Like, no, I'm doing a really good job. Check me out. Does that make sense? Totally. And I think a lot of there's there's two points that I find really revealing about what you said. One is sort of the expectation that you're constantly available, right, via email. I think people expect you to reply quickly. I feel like it used to be like a 48 hour turnaround on an email was pretty good. And now people will like email you after a few hours being like, did you get my email? So there's just this like expectation that, you know, that you're always on your email and that you're always replying really quickly. That's one thing that I think that stuck out to me. And then the other thing is that I think is really important, especially when we're talking about grad school or these, these academic jobs where you have the two the three tiers of research, teaching, and service, I don't know necessarily how clear the job description is, right? So for my position, there are very clear guidelines for everything that's involved in what all, for what all of my tasks are. When we hire new people, we have a training guide that shows them exactly these are your tasks. They get trained on all of the tasks. And that's sort of, you know, sometimes there's more of each than fits into four hours. Um, but generally speaking, there's a very clear sense of what the job description is. And I feel like with your type of job, or even, you know, even more so being in grad school, where the general task is to build your resume and to do as much as you possibly can to build the strongest resume that you possibly can, so that you can have a job that then requires you to do more of that. So you can get tenure. Uh, if you are in a tenure track position, I think that the last of clarity around what's actually involved in what's implied in your salaried position and what are sort of things that are tacked on on the outside make it really difficult to not fall into this trap of productivity. Do more, do more, do more. I agree that sometimes that can be toxic. And if we think back to our last episode when Elisa was here and she talked to us about how she became physically ill during this long stretch on the job market, I think that, you know, that really drives home that point that there is a limit to what our bodies and what our minds can do. Specifically, if we're talking about the pandemic, I don't know if you saw, Aaron. there was an article in Inside Higher Ed actually earlier this week about how the risk of burnout has significantly increased among faculty. The author of the article spoke to a number of different professors in various fields at different universities, at different types of universities, all of whom reported sort of the same thing, that, that people are starting to feel burned out. And that part of that is sort of, I've heard from a lot of people that they're being asked to do more now, both in terms of an increased workload and in terms of the multiple channels, right? A lot of professors are being asked to prepare their material both for face-to-face -face presentation and online instruction, which for a lot of them is a completely new thing, while also worrying about all of these other things like getting sick, how do I stay healthy? Um, you know, the political situation causes a lot of um, anxiety and people and stress. And then for many of, you know, for many faculty, of course, the added task of homeschooling their own children. So, and the article makes it very clear that the risk of burnout was a huge factor before the pandemic already. So this has only become worse. 
um, through with all of these added factors. Erin, have you experienced academia to be pushing you toward this kind of exhaustion as well? Or what's your experience with those aspects? Right, for sure. Both before and after pandemic. Absolutely. This resonates with me. I was just thinking about right now how there's a stress to be doing my best as far as like teaching in this new mode of synchronous virtual learning and feeling like really stressed out about whether or not everything is coming across to my students in a way that I feel is helpful to them because there are some students that just keep their video off and they don't speak throughout the whole meeting. I'm really worried about those students. I've reached out. I've emailed them. So I'm stressed out about them. I'm stressed out about whether I seem like a flat or dynamic professor in this mode because as energetic or quirky or eccentric as I may be in class, which is actually adds a level of, I think, interest, I don't know if it comes across. Like you said, I'm worried about my own kids out at school and this face-to-face environment. Is everything okay? But beyond that, going back to when I started my job, I am not tenure track. And I was thinking about how when I started, I told you already that we were expected to do an 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. workday. That being said, our student population at that time I started, there was a lot of non-traditional students who attended night classes. So that meant that I would arrive at 8 a.m., but then I'd work until 9.45 p.m. And as I mentioned, I had quite a commute, right? And this all is taking away time from my family, but I was like, I got a job. And this was a really big deal for me. Like, I was so lucky, right? Alisa used that word last time, lucky. But I mean, I worked my ass off, really, to get that job and have that resume. And I got it. You know, against all odds, I got a job in my home state that I could commute to. That was a really big deal for me. So I was like, to my family, look, I have to do this. I have to be there. This is when they gave me classes. Yeah, I have a morning class. And now I have this class that goes to 9.45 p.m. at night. But it just felt like by the time I got home, it was, again, maybe a half an hour commute at nighttime. So it's, you know, now 10.30. And I know, you know, this feeling, I was so wound up after class. I was like, you know, I'm already kind of a high energy person, but the stress of driving down the Detroit freeway, always fun. And then just this sort of like high energy after coming down from class, I always feel like a four hour class is like a performance. You know, I felt like a rock star. Like I'd be like, whoo, I need my water bottle. I need to take a break now. And I couldn't wind down. And then I had to get up for it the next day to be back at 8 a.m. again. And so I felt incredibly burned out in those stretches. I felt exhausted. And then I did, I remember just always everyone kind of having this weird, you know, not a teacher flu, but like I chronically get some form of cold or bronchitis or something like that, because as teachers, we're surrounded by people anyway. And yes, so my long answer to this is, again, I think there was a lot of that earlier on. Now that I'm in more of an administrative position of my own, I can make the schedule work for me. But here's the thing, not everyone has that choice or that capability. Right. Because now once I moved up to a role where I was making the schedule, I'm like, I'm not doing that to anyone. (laughs) Let's make this make sense for them. And I think the person that was giving me my schedule was not experienced in this didn't occur to her that like maybe I didn't want to work. 14 hours a day, right? Or like she was also very, very like, I've got to be the best. This was like her first big job in academia. So she thought working 12 to 14 hours a day was the norm. And that was what she should be doing to keep her job. And now that I'm in that role, I'm not going to do that to anyone. I try to work with my colleagues and coworkers to be like, what works for your schedule? But that's not always the case. And especially for people that are working as adjuncts, sometimes you just have to take the classes you can get and they're all over. And it means it's like 12 or 14 hour workday. So I think there's a lot within this schedule before the pandemic that led to this idea of toxic productivity, right? Like you just have to be on, you have to be on point. And now because I'm not seeing my students in person the way I was, I have to be online all day and all night. And I have to be there for them, right? It's my responsibility. But to what end, right? Sometimes I just have to be like, look, Aaron, turn off your email. Do not go back online tonight. But that's a hard boundary for me to set. So I feel like I'm constantly confronting these issues. I think that's an important boundary to set, though. And I've talked about this before here, too, that for me, that was one of the first steps of transitioning into a job outside of the academy was that I started to be more protective of those boundaries and to make sure that I didn't pick up my phone or look at my 
computer to check my emails on the weekends and at night. And I am lucky in that I work in an environment where that's very much accepted and supported. And there's a lot of actual sort of making those expectations explicit. There's a lot of encouragement to say, now go home and enjoy your weekend on Fridays or whatever. I hope everybody, you know, I hope you have a great weekend. I hope you have a great evening. There's absolutely no expectation. You know, if something happens over the weekend, there's not the expectation that you should have caught it sooner or whatever. Um, and so that's, a you know, I live, I, I work in a very supportive environment in that way. So that's really that again, that may be lucky, but it's also something that, you know, I sought out and that I, you know, where I turned down another job or quit another job where I didn't sort of have that flexibility and where I didn't feel like I would be able to, to maintain those boundaries as well. And that had some other, you know, that had some other consequences. But I think what's important here and that, you know, that taking going back to the Inside at Higher Ed article, one of the one of the factors that the article mentioned that also really increases the sense of burnout is the the lack of control. And that makes me think about the way that you and Elisa talked last week about adjuncting. And you've told me about this before, where you're teaching five different classes at multiple different institutions that adds your commute. And maybe you don't feel in a position where you can turn down a class or whatever, and you don't have that control. Or when you're new in a job, like you said earlier, and they were expecting you to work all those hours, that that sense of a lack of control really increases um, this the the risk at experiencing this burnout. And so I think, you know, some of the factors that make us feel out of control or that can make people feel out of control is not just the scheduling, but also the requirements for tenure, right? I've already talked about sort of like how evasive some of these job descriptions are. And so I think there's this idea that you have to meet certain requirements for tenure, but what exactly are those requirements? Are they always 100% clear? Or are you just trying to get as much under your belt as you can or let's say, you know, you're, this is something that occurs to me, your student evaluations aren't as strong as you were hoping they would be. So you try to make up for it by publishing more or publishing better or doing more service. So there are always these like ways to try and balance those things out that can feel beyond control. And at the same time, another factor of that is how relentless and unrealistic those expectations can be. Right. Where do we find the time right now? You know, and I think this has always been a part of the academy, but when we talk about service, well, how much service, what does that mean? And do you keep saying yes to everything or as you grow more um, sophisticated in your thinking and start to have some experience, do you start to say no to things? Because I remember saying yes to everything. And we've talked about this, right? Just like, sure, I'll be on that committee because there was a sense in my mind, again, from day one that I needed to say yes because I needed to build that CV. And then I feel like it was sort of proven because I got the job. And that was a thing that I could refer to. Because one question for me was that I have a literary PhD, but I'm going to be teaching composition. That's always the big question, right? For those of you that are not in the field of like literary and cultural studies, which is like this divide between teaching writing and writing about writing. Anyway, I digress. But I had that CV to say, well, look, I've taught all these composition classes, but then I've also served on this composition committee. I was on assessment committee. I served on a pilot study to try this new curriculum out. I was in a reading group. So they're like, okay, you know your stuff. So in some ways, all those things I did that sort of drove my family to like question what I was doing and why I was gone so long actually did pay off because then I had that resume and I showed that I was well-rounded. Another point that Smith brings up, and of course, I'll share the link to this in our show notes, is kind of that you have relentless and unrealistic expectations for yourself. So you feel like you're constantly failing to be enough. I feel like I've mentioned this before for my own personal life that like I feel like at times I wasn't doing my best in either realm of my life. And I really liked what you said or really kind of related about being at home with your kids, but then always having these thoughts in the back of your mind, like I should be doing this. I should be working on this. I could be doing something else to be more productive. And I feel like that's a disservice to my kids, but to my work as well. And that's really a hard challenge. Do you think that this is a social issue? Is this something that's sort of ingrained? And I actually, this is going to be a broader question. I wondered if this is just 
culturally something that takes place more in the United States. I wondered if this is like an American mindset or if this is just kind of a whole Western mindset for like setting up these sort of very unrealistic expectations for working parents like we are. That is a big question. So just to start maybe more from a local perspective, from my own experience in the United States, I guess, I I think that that's a really important issue. And I struggle with that a lot. There are all of these sort of internalized expectations about what a good uh, work ethic is and what good parenting means. And I think that the United States is very, that there is, there our ideals of motherhood that we've talked about before that require mothers, particularly fathers too, but particularly mothers to be always invested in their children's development, both in terms of like time, emotion, all those kinds of things. And so those, I think those standards and those ideals become internalized to a degree where they prevent us from maybe thinking about what kinds of parents we want to be or we could be or what our strengths are as parents, right? There's, there are these, we've, we've talked about this before. There are all of these ideals about uh, cooking. And I know that one thing that is huge in Germany that stresses me out, just like seeing my German friends post about it is a lot of them make, will make their own like costumes for Halloween. They'll make their own costumes. A lot of my friends like sew their own clothes for their kids and things like that. That's, that's something that stresses me out, which I, I just don't, I mean, it doesn't stress me out a whole lot because I don't have any skills. And so it's not something that I actually try to even remotely put on my plate, but there's just all of these different things that we internalize thinking about what it means to be a good parent. And I think we do the same thing for, you know, what it means to be, have a good work ethic. I think this idea that we have to respond to emails really quickly is one of those examples that comes to mind or the level of investment that you have in your students and in your students' development. That's another big factor where, where again, the ideal is sort of a vague one. It's not a numerical one. It's not, I have to write 20 emails today. That's a manageable goal, right? That's something that I can put my, put a number on and that I can say, all right, it's going to take me an hour and a half to write write 20 emails. And so I can do that. But if it's a question of I have to ensure my students well being, how do you measure that? And so that's a big issue, too. I think that a lot of these goals are not measurable. And then it just becomes a constant struggle to try and meet those goals. That being said, my observation when I do go to Germany is that people are generally a little bit better about just that relaxing time, that relaxation time. Like all the stores are closed on Sundays. So in most places, so that takes like a whole hustle out of your Sunday. And then, you know, when you walk or when you go, and now I've never been a parent in Germany. I grew up in Germany, but I've never been a parent there. So I can't really speak to that all that well. But it seems to me that people are a little bit better about unwinding when it's time to unwind, taking those taking those Sundays off, um, staying home when you're sick. That's something that's completely acceptable. I think we're in the United States. Some people want you to stay home when you're sick, but because they, they don't want to get sick. They don't want to catch whatever it is that you have, uh, not because they think that you should get better. You know what I mean? Um, and then, <laughs> right. And, it's not about and, like, take your time, rest up, recuperate. It's like, oh no, I don't want that. Don't bring, uh, don't, don't bring your you. germs. Don't bring your germs to work is basically the, the concern right. and the end vacation time. Right. That's the other, that's the other big factor. I have 10, I have 12 vacation days in my job. Uh, I don't think that you would start a job in Germany with fewer than 20. And so that's, and, and it's accepted when people go on vacation that they're on vacation. Like I've gotten emails from German scholars that I've tried to get in touch with where it was like, I'm out of the office for all of September and there's nobody there that will answer questions during that time. And so you just have to come back in October. And I feel like that would never fly here. And so in that sense, I 
do think that there's a little bit more understanding of like how important rest time is and how important break times are and how important it is to relax. And so Smith mentions that this idea of restlessness is a huge factor of toxic productivity. So the idea that, you know, when it is time to relax, we find it difficult to relax or we have a hard time sleeping. And that's something that I mentioned earlier, where I really have noticed myself over the last few weeks, even on weekends, having a hard time with the fact that I can't get a whole lot done because all of the three kids are home with us. And so I still have a hard time just kind of sitting down with them on the floor and playing or building something with Legos or, you know, when my daughter needs extra time to fall asleep and she needs some extra snuggles because it was a busy day or something like that. I have a really hard time shutting off that list in my head that's still ticking about all of the things that I was going to accomplish after bedtime, which is insane. I shouldn't, you know, have five or 10 things that I'm trying to accomplish after bedtime. That should be my time to unwind so that I can be productive the next day. And that's something that, you know, I think it helps to be mindful of. I think it's helping me get more aware, become more aware of that and uh, work on just sort of sitting in those moments. Um, But it could be it could be hard sometimes. Do you struggle with restlessness a lot? Are you sleeping well? What are, what's your experience with that, with all that? I don't think I've I don't think I've slept well in like seventeen years. And I know that's again <laughs> kind of this like, yeah, that's motherhood, babe. Okay, all right. Um, but <laughs> that's the honest truth. I think because the way my I had my kids are all kind of roughly three and a half years apart, so I was finally one would finally be kind of coming to terms with going to bed, and then I'd have an infant, and um. <laughs> But beyond that, uh, something that you said, I have a really rough time sitting there being in the moment with my children as well. And I feel terrible about that a lot of times because I just like, okay, I can play with you for like 20 minutes, but I have a lot of other things to work on because I need to go back to that email and make sure that no one has sent me something in the last five or 10 minutes. And guess what? Whenever I go back on the email, there is something. There's always something to reply to. There always is. And you also, you're mentioning this like idea of like in other countries, which I've read about that like rest time is rest time or vacation time is vacation time. I've noticed that I will write people sometimes from my job and I get the automatic generated response, which is like, so-and-so is on paid time off. They'll be returning to the office in three days. But then the weird thing is the person writes me back anyway. So even though they're on paid time off, they're still checking their emails. Like we cannot shut it off. And this has happened so many times where I write someone something and I get that like they're out of the office and then an hour later, they're still writing me back anyway. Right. Um, Which I think speaks volumes about, again, this idea that like, no, just take a break for, you know, just if this is your week off, take your week off. I am a restless person by nature. I think it's just um, part of my personality. But I have trouble getting to sleep at night. And then also lately, um, I would say for the last, I don't know, since school started again, I wake up really early with just this like feeling in my gut, like you have to get up now because there's something you need to be working on. I don't know what it is necessarily when I'm first waking up, but I just feel this like there is something that you need to be doing now. What is it today? What meeting do you have? What essays do you need to grade? What content do you need to be creating? And I just feel this like almost dread in my stomach of like, okay, get up. You can't afford to take that five minutes news. You have to get up now at six. 25 and start your day. And I don't like that feeling. I I think it would be nice if I could unwind and relax, but I just haven't found like that's something I can do right now. So I also was reading and I think I saw it like in a little meme or social media post, but it was talking about how so many of us stay up way later than we should. Like most of us in America are highly sleep deprived, but I was reading that a lot of us stay up so late because that's the one time in our 24-hour cycle that we feel like no one's bothering us. That chill time, that watching TV or going through social media posts, it's like the one time where it's quiet, where it's stress-free, where we're not getting IMs and pings about what we need to be working on. And so I think that's like this circular sort of behavior because then I'm tired again when I get up because I stayed up too late because that's the only time I feel like I have to myself. So 
This, I think, again, predates the pandemic. I had another little article that I can share from 2019. It was in Medium, and Nancy Driver was writing about this idea of being obsessed with productivity. And she was kind of stating that every time she opens up Twitter, Instagram, or Reddit, there's always something about how to be more productive. And she writes that this toxic productivity goes in hand with our hustle culture and workaholism, which, again, I think are kind of really indicative to our society today where it's like, you have to exhaust yourself to be great, right? And she writes, just keep on grinding, guys. And I mean, you know, she even makes this little comment that like in hustle culture, there often seems to be a competition even over who gets the least amount of sleep. Like, I only got four hours. Oh, me over here, just three. And I mean, we shouldn't be, that shouldn't be something that we're like boasting about, right? Uh, that's, that seems like a really weird thing to be bragging about, like who is the least well-rested. That's terrible. But that's part of our workaholic culture, right? Like just keep going. It's okay. Everyone's sleep deprived. We're all working our hardest. I just don't see like, what's the end game with that, right? Where do we end up? That's true. The And the sleep deprivation contest, I feel like also is used to show that you're the most dedicated worker. And it's part of like, look at, you know, look at me. I'm, I didn't get enough sleep. And yet here I am showing up for work, doing what I can. And that's very, that's very detrimental. And especially the sleep deprivation is a huge factor when, you know, when it comes to postpartum depression and things like that. I think that sleep deprivation is, you know, that's a torture method that should show, you know, show all of us how significant that is and how important it is. And it contributes, you know, I did a little bit of research on representations of postpartum depression for my dissertation. And what I found was that it's a huge contributing factor to women struggling in their postpartum months or years. And if you're then doing, you know, if you're dealing with that while also trying to manage the demands of a, of a full-time job, that's just really just incredibly, yeah, it can be toxic. And like you said, everyone seems to be losing, right? Yeah. And in addition to that, I think there's this constant pressure to be online, as you said, already with emails, but also social media. There's sort of this idea that like everybody has the right to see what we're doing, what we're up to. And at the same time, social media are also a way to sort of present, like we're creating a whole different life on social media, right? Social media don't represent in any way what our lives are like, even if we're showing how sleepy we are or how messy our house is or whatever, it is still sort of a completely designed space that we create to present a certain facet of our own lives and of our own selves. And so that, again, is something that adds another level of pressure. It's another activity, another thing on our to-do list that we have to sort of think about if we're active on social media. And, some, you know, some people might be better at being reflected on that and and maybe limiting themselves there but i do think that that's a whole another a whole another aspect to consider in this whole conversation Right. I would say it's like almost curating a persona, if you will. Yes. And I feel like for academics, it's another place we're expected to be productive. And it's not just like me posting a cute pic of my kids and my personal Facebook. No, Facebook is another medium. If I have colleagues there and supervisors there, I'm curating a look at myself. But I feel like there's a performative aspect to all this, which is that look at me. I'm so I'm grading this or I did that. But beyond that, um, there is this idea like if you're at a conference now. You can't just be in the conference in the moment. You're like making um, witty tweets. You're like live tweeting from the conference, like hashtag MLA. Here's something <sighs> that one of the speakers said. And I'm serious. Like people are like, you know, hashtagging it to kind of like, I feel like show that you were there. But for whom? Is it for yourself or is it for the rest of the world to see just how engaged you really were? That's why I think we talked about Twitter a little bit. I have a hard time keeping up with like the sort of quick pace of Twitter. I don't always have a snappy comeback or something smart to say. I have to think about it. And I feel like that's really a quick pace too. And that becomes another job, right? Curating this awesome Twitter presence. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I'm just too stressed out already to do that. I'm actually really impressed by people that can continue to post really quality content content day to day, hour to hour, sharing stories, sharing anecdotes. Like I'm impressed by that. I think in some ways though, 
that may be something that I just don't have time to do because I also have four kids. I think Twitter is a very specific format too, where you have to create content in a very, very specific way. And that might be something that some people are better at than others. I think that wittiness and that conciseness and that sharp observation and and things like that is not necessarily something that everybody does equally well at all times. To me, that's, that's the thing is like, I have tried Twitter, but then I don't feel like the the format really speaks to what I what I can keep up with. You know, I might have something every once in a while, but Twitter sort of it feels like Twitter requires a constant flow of content. And like you said, there's just too much else going on for me to be able to also think about life in in tweets. Right. And that's another full time job Um, to go back to, again, thinking about like the work we do that goes unnoticed or whatever. I feel like that's just a lot of labor to be constantly you know, toggling back and forth. I'm already trying to create some sort of LinkedIn presence um, to be there. Mostly I'm on LinkedIn because a lot of our students go there to like look for jobs, but then I'm on academia and that has a presence that needs to be updated and added to. Then I was asking you about being, you know, the ORCID, I think it's O-R-C-I-D. This is another database where you can share your work. And so that needs to be updated and curated. And those are the ones that are just for like searching for jobs or academic roles and things like that. The Twitter is sort of on the sidelines. So that's just a lot of work. Um, and I think you've already done a little bit to explain to me how this works in your field in an alt-act job. But do you have anything else to say about sort of the differences between this world of, you know, teaching as opposed to the work you do? Do you find it a little bit easier for people that are still thinking about what they might like to do after the PhD? Do you think it's, is it any easier to turn off all this at the end of the day? I can say that for myself, it is. I feel that now being in the position that I am, I can take the weekends and not feel guilty about the work that I'm not doing at that time. I also am very invested in the people that I work with and the and the books that they're writing, but not to the extent that I take it into my weekend. And that was something that was different when I was dealing with students, you know, and especially depending on what kind of student demographic you have. If you have students that are struggling with really major life things, that is difficult for me to turn off. That's all sort of relationship based in a way that you take that you're always taking the work with you that between that and the pressure to create and both in terms of syllabi, teaching lessons, um, and then also articles, research, things like that. There's just a lot of creation that is happening that I'm currently not actively involved in, right? So I manage projects. I don't write books. And so that's something that I miss most about the job that I have now. But it's also something that helps me sort of rein in what the work that I do at work and open up that space while my kids are little to to spend the time with them as as much as I'm still working on that as I've said earlier it's still is more conducive the job that I currently have is more conducive to sort of establishing boundaries between work and life and so that that is a factor that has made me very happy in the position that I'm in right now even though there might be some things that that I miss also of course right and I was just thinking about how this can play out between the different types of jobs and posts that people in academia might apply for. Because, you know, one might think, well, it might be easier to sort of find this balance at a community college, but I think there's a push and pull between the different types of duties and expectations. As Elisa talked about last week, and as I myself know, when we're at a community college or career college, the teaching expectations are quite substantial. And so in my case, I have a 27 credit load over 12 months. And so I do have a 12-month contract. That means I don't have the summer off necessarily. It's a slower time for me. 
but that boils down to about nine classes a year. And that's in addition to the administrative duties I have and then the service work, right? I have assessment committees I'm on. I also work as a tutor sometimes and as a coach for our fast track program. That's like a program to help people. It's like an admissions process where people create these essays to see if they're college ready. So I do that work that's not counted as a class. I also work as a tutor, um, as I said, for a co-requisite lab course, and that doesn't count as part of my teaching load. So um, I'm doing that. And then I'm also creating new curriculum. And then now, because I have expanded duties, I'm fielding a lot of questions from faculty all over the state. But it's not publish or perish for me. So if I were at an R1 school or at more of a liberal arts college, there might be other expectations about publishing as well. And the onus is on that. The teaching load is a little bit less, but then you know, someone's writing their own book. And I try to do a little bit of both because like you said, I think I would miss not having a creative project to work on. I like to continue to do that work just to sort of remind me of my roots. I still go to conferences as I can because I want to be engaged in those conversations. That's the part I really miss from graduate school is like having those deep meaningful conversations. And that's why I love doing this podcast, because we can talk about some of these big ideas. So you did, uh, with all this in mind, are there any things we can do? I think you're a lot smarter about this and I'll, and you practice these ideas about mindfulness a little bit better than I do. Is there anything, any advice that any of the experts um, have shared that you think might be helpful to our listeners? So we found some advice about how to ease the pressure of toxic productivity. And that's still from uh, Julie Smith. And so she has some tips and I'm going to gloss over some of them. And then I'm going to dive a little bit deeper into some of them because, yes, these are things that I'm very passionate about and have some have a lot of thoughts on. So she starts off by saying, recognize that you are a human being which makes sense, just like everyone else. And you are enough as you are today. So that's something that you see all over productivity memes and spaces online. That's always sort of the reminder that comes up. You are enough as you are. The more often you say that, the more you, the more you wonder, why do we have to keep saying it? Because clearly nobody believes it just yet, right? <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> we have to be reminded. I mean, yes. it's, uh, right. It's everywhere. And, it's, and if it's in the same spaces that sort of at the same time give you all of these tips about being more productive, it becomes sort of self- annihilating in a way, uh, self-deleting in a way. And then a huge factor in all of these conversations is always self-care, right? Realize that self-care is not an indulgent, it is essential. This is something that I spend a lot of time thinking about because I wonder what exactly does this mean? And I've, you know, I've sort of alluded to it in past episodes where I think that these big self-care ideas don't get to the core of the problem. Like these big things that are like, get a pedicure, take a nice bubbly bath. I'm not saying those things are bad. And I'm not saying that they don't help you in some ways or that they don't, they aren't wonderful for some people to recover or to relax or whatever. But I don't think that they necessarily get to the core of the problem. So to dig into that a little bit more, the suggestion in the article is that you should have some non-negotiables on your self-care list. So some things that you always do and that you that you put into your day where my issue with that, especially in the context of productivity, is how do you make sure that your self-care items aren't just another bullet point on your to-do list, right? So like when it, when you get to the point where it's like, okay, so I have my to-do list for the day. I have my list of tasks. And then among these tasks are also going running for 30 minutes, making my own lunch, uh, drinking X amount of water. Are we still talking about self-care or does it just become another thing to check off of the list, right? And so when we're thinking about uh, non-negotiables, I actually did take a little bit of a deep dive into that and looked and found another um, blog post on a blog called uh, Living Marvelously. And this author is talking about ways to define non-negotiables. And so what she defines it briefly as something that's not open to discussion, that's pretty um, self-explanatory, but this is something that should be done every day. It shouldn't be something that you think you should be doing. 
but something that you actually want to be doing. And then she suggests to think about them as a promise that you keep to yourself. And so for me, one of the big things on this list that I want to talk for a minute about is the idea of things that you want to do and not things that you think you should be doing. So some of the examples that she lists are things like meditating, exercising, no alcohol, a gratitude journal, reading for 30 minutes every day. So that's something that like I don't always have time for or I don't always have energy for. And then it just becomes another thing I feel guilty about, right? So like you were saying, like people stay up later than they should. And then the question becomes, how do you use that time? Because if you're scrolling, or this is just true for me, if I scroll through Instagram for 30 minutes, that doesn't make me feel better. That just makes me feel guilty that I had 30 minutes that I could have used for something, you know, a productive way to do self-care. Um, and instead, I just sat on Instagram. So I think it involves a lot of grace, too. And the other thing that always gets to me is the idea that, like, people will suggest um, just giving yourself permission not to do something like the dishes, right? And that. <laughs> That, yes, that's just something that that kills me because if I don't do the dishes today, I have to do the dishes tomorrow. So there are certain things like like if I don't do them, I just don't do them. And that's fine. Like I might think, oh, you know, I have a birthday party coming up or something. And I really want to get a pedicure for that because I want to feel nice about my toes. And then the birthday comes around. I don't have time to get the pedicure. I wear closed toe shoes situation is done, right? I gave myself permission not to worry about my toes and then I can move on. If I give myself permission not to do the dishes, I can't move on because they're still going to be in the sink the next day. So for me, self-care is also a lot about um, what are things that your future self is going to thank you for, right? And so to me, doing the dishes every night and making that part of my routine can be an act of self-care because that it makes me, you know, when I wake up the next morning and I walk into the clean kitchen, it makes me feel good about the day. It makes me feel good about myself. Um, but that, you know, that can be like a loopy argument where, you know, but I, is it a cop out? Am I not actually, am I, you know, where, where does the actual self care come in? Right. Because these sort of really mundane domestic duties that often fall within the realm of women, just because of old ideas about gender and work, is that I and I totally understand where you're coming from because that is just a constant source of consternation for me and my family, which is that in a family of six, we generate a lot of dishes. And as I revealed to you uh, in a conversation off the podcast, I my dishwasher doesn't work. So it's hand wash dishes. And my kids, you know, they do drink a lot of water, which is great, but it's just like something from a movie. You find cups and dishes all over the place. My husband works really, really hard in a manual labor job, so he's often too exhausted to put his dinner plate away, and then it's encrusted with some sort of sauce or whatever. <laughs> I don't want to go off on a tangent either here, and I don't want to lose my train of thought, but like, I don't know if doing them so, yeah, so they sit there, right? And they sit there, and they sit there, and if I don't do them, they don't get done. And I agree with you. I prefer to wake up, and then they're done for the morning, so I have my fresh coffee mug, so I can have my coffee, because coffee to me is self-care. But I think there is sort yeah. of a fine line in this conversation between, like, what just needs to get done and, like, things that, you know, actually bring us joy or help us feel a sense of peace. And I think there, I think it's important that we sort of like think about, you know, things that just have to get done because they're a duty or things that, like you said, you actually enjoy. Like I don't actually enjoy the dishes doing them. I hate it. But at the same time, I hate more getting up in the morning and it's just exactly. a gross mess of something I have to deal with now at 6.30 a.m. just so I can get my coffee mug because that's what brings me the joy in the morning, you know? Exactly. So, I don't enjoy um, doing the kitchen, but I enjoy a clean... I don't enjoy doing the dishes, but I enjoy a clean kitchen, exactly. right? Exactly. So, it's so yeah. tricky. It is. But and but then the other thing is there are tips in the blog post about like, you know, if you do it every day, set yourself a timer and say or set yourself a limit and say, I'm going to do this every day for three, 30 days or for three months. And then, you know, what they usually say is it takes about three weeks to 30 days to form a habit. Right. So now I, you know, once I I got to the point where when I first moved into my first house, 
I, that was not part of my established routine doing the dishes. I would often leave them for the next day. And so it became this thing at the end of the day there where I was like, do I feel like it or do I not feel like it? Do I want to do it or do I not want to do it? Do I wait for my husband to do it or do I just do it myself? Do I have a conversation with my husband about who should be doing the dishes? And so it just became this whole cluster of things surrounding the dishes that is unnecessary. I just did it. You know, I just started doing it and it just became part of my nightly routine. And then the question was out. Like it was no longer a question like, am I going to do this or or am I not going to do this? So I'm doing these things that like one might consider self-care and yet there's this pressure to do more self-care. So like, do I, like once I've established a habit, do I then have to like add a new self-care habit or do I get to the point where it's like, okay, I do these like three, four or five things and now I'm good to go. I don't know. Right. And do those things become a source of stress? Like, oh, exactly. like you said, like, I got to make the time for the yoga class today because I am clearly stressed out and I don't, you know, and I just feel like that, you know, I have to get to my organic food source so I can make myself my nice salad because that's going to make me feel better. I'll feel better about myself, but getting over to the place where I can buy those things is equally stressful. So I think these are all really great ideas. I think continuing to like think about how to actually implement and use this idea of self-care is one that deserves further introspection. I'm terrible at it. The one thing that comes to mind when I had my first son was that a nurse, this was my non-negotiable moment. When I first had my son, my first child, the nurse was like, you know, and there's going to be days where you don't even have time to take a shower because that baby needs you and the baby's going to be crying and you don't even shower and you're just wearing the same sweatpants and sweatshirt for like three days in a row. And I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. I take a shower. I'm taking a shower. The baby can cry for 15 minutes and sometimes he did, but that was my non-negotiable. But it's like, wow, a shower. How amazing. But at the same time, it was something like I felt was necessary to make myself feel okay and presentable. But I also feel like that's like a basic minimum, especially right after childbirth. I I just remember feeling so sloppy and sweaty and I don't want to say this, but leaky, (laughs) just like everything was a mess. That was a non-negotiable moment for me. And I just said to the nurse, no, I'm taking a shower. Like, I'm sorry. That's just not who I am. And so I did and everything was fine and he's almost 17 and it all worked out. But that was like my moment of like, that is one thing I have to do every day. I just do. And that's an indulgence as well. I could do better about, you know, skipping a day, but it's just something I need to like clear my head in the morning too. But that's exactly it, though. I think that those are the kinds of things that are really useful in the conversation about self-care, right? Are those are, is the idea of a non-negotiable that that you need to to make it through the rest of the day. And for me, you know, maybe that's like you said, coffee is like an important thing. Like and and a lot of times I've said this before, too. It's like getting up before like ten, five to ten minutes before everybody else, just so that I can clean, like brush my teeth without somebody else in the room. That's a big one for me. Like you know, I don't want to have to move my toddler away from the toilet paper roll four times and just in the process of brushing my teeth. So I set myself an alarm to make sure that I can get up before everybody else. And and I think that those things are uh, the little things that we should think about that we can do for ourselves rather than adding another piece to our to-do list that then adds to this idea that we have to use downtime productively to take care of ourselves. This all sort of is in tune with my day and everything I'm doing. I sort of wanted to like tell you this weird thing that happens to me though with all this in mind, which is when I do get downtime and when I don't have a ton of projects happening, weirdly, I have this sense of panic like I should still be working on something. So this week, or actually my children have gone and have been in school now for the last three weeks, but um, my husband's also been out of the house now as well. And it's almost like I feel now weirdly like I don't know what to do with myself because some of the pressure is off. I had a huge project, which was like scheduling classes for the five different campuses. And that was like really tricky to me, not something I've done before. And just trying to figure out, you know, of these five campuses all over the state of Michigan, who needed what class and when and where. And it was just, it it was really stressful for me. And now that's over. So now I'm like, okay. And my writing projects that I worked on in the summer, they've already gone through the second round of edits. I'm like, I need something to work on now. But I wonder if, again, if this is all part of that same mindset that I've been sort of really ingrained in for the last 10 years, since 2010, starting graduate school. 
you need to be doing something else. Come on, Aaron, what's going on? Like, what's the next project? What are you going to do? Should you think about that edited collection you wanted to do with your your friend that's an acquisitions (laughs) editor? No. And that's where my mind goes because I feel like in a weird way, I think because a lot of my day is focused in on the kind of things I don't really want to do, I actually like doing creative work. I like writing. I like thinking about ideas. So even though that idea of like publishing and writing can be really stressful to some, I mean, what brought us to the field of literary and cultural studies is that we like writing and we like thinking. And so I miss that when I don't have it. So that's a really weird sort of way to kind of finish up the episode, but I almost feel like I'm unhappy when I don't have one of those projects back on the back burner thinking about it. I like that work. I miss it. But I think that's an important factor to consider too, that we have jobs that are enjoyable to us overall and that I, it might, you know, you might consider it an act of self-care when you have that time or within that productivity, that pressure to be productive, to select the things that are actually meaningful to you, right? Because we pick the careers that we pick for a reason. And so we should be able to engage in those activities. But then to be able to say, all right, you know, I've done my duties when it comes to service, And now if I'm going to spend more time on work and away from my kids, it's going to be about something that I'm passionate about and that I care about. And so that I don't think that that's a horrible way to round off the episode. I think that's that's a reasonable takeaway when as long as we can figure out ways or we remember to figure out ways to still, you know, be present with our kids and to to make the best of the of work. We all want to be productive in some way. And that's one of the things that Julie Smith also says. It's not a matter of being lazy or being ultra productive. And those are the only two choices. We want to be productive. We want to be doing these things. But how can we make them, uh, how can we fit them into our lives in a way that keeps us sane and keeps us healthy? That is the, that is the big question, I think. Right. Especially in this world with so many changes and everything else. So I think this is a really great productive conversation about toxic productivity, which is (laughs) ironic, I suppose. Do you have any other things you wanted to talk about this week before we close out? Any hacks, any reads? I feel like I don't really, I'm constantly sort of looking to you for ideas about how to sort of make sense of my landscape to make time for myself. I think it's good. I would say that I've really, as much as my kids going back to school has been a little bit stressful, this just seems like such a relief to me these last few weeks of having a quiet space to think and to work from nine to three, or actually they go, they're actually at school at eight. So now I can work from home in a way that's like really pretty conducive to like getting done what I need to get done. And now I feel like I can almost end my day a little bit sooner because I'm so productive in those hours that they're not here. So that's been nice for me. But is there anything else you wanted to share as far as hacks or reading? I have not read much further in all of Kitteridge because I actually, and I'll just, I won't talk about it for a long time because it's not that interesting, but it's a, it's a side note that's relevant to the po- the topic of the podcast. I had to put it aside because I was reading a book about introducing solids um, because my daughter is starting to eat solids. And so I sort of haven't made any progress on my novel because I was reading, I was start trying to be informed about how to do this well, even though this is my third time of doing it. For a hack for me that, you know, may or may not relate to the episode, I recently finally, after much nudging from my phone, upgraded my software with with an upgrade that was long overdue. And it auto-installed basically the screen time. Are you using that at all? Have you used that before? No, I have not. So it records my screen time. And it tells me at the end of the day, you know, how many hours I was spent on my phone and what I used it for. And it also allows me to put time limits on different apps. And so I now for my social media use, my phone tells me when it's time to be done. And I find that very useful and very helpful. And I'm uh, I'm appreciating it. And you can, you know, it's easy to bypass it. It's not if there's something else that you want to do or need to do or need to look at, it's very easy to bypass it. But just to have my phone say to me, you have spent this many hours on Instagram today, it might be time to move on to something else is really useful. And it makes me want to change a lot of things in my life. So I think it's it's helpful with that 
reflection that we've talked about a couple of times too, just to kind of get a feel for how much time I'm spending on what and to to evaluate those choices, reevaluate and reconsider those choices and maybe make different ones in the future. Yeah, I need something like that because I'm still the dinosaur. I spend most of my time on my laptop surfing. I don't do a ton on my phone. Um, yeah, I'm not, I never, like I have my phone and I do sometimes when I'm in the car, I'll like scroll through Instagram for like, I don't know, five minutes while I'm waiting for my kids. And I like it, but I don't spend a whole lot of time on that through my phone, but it would probably be my laptop. And to that tune, I remember someone telling me about this back when I was writing my dissertation, that there are different types of programs that you can actually block. Um, You can Mm -hmm. install this app and like block. You're not allowed to go on Facebook for three hours today. I think in some ways we extend this time of our workday because we're doing other things that maybe we shouldn't be doing, you know, doing during that time. So I think that's a conversation as well. Um, I think it was a really good episode and I would love to hear more about how other people across the world think about this idea of productivity and then toxic productivity. Is this a truly Western phenomenon? Is this something that people see all over the world and how does it impact your day to day? We'd love to hear from you either at our Instagram, which is PhD in parenting or via our Google account, which is PhD in parenting podcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like what you're hearing, um, please feel free to like subscribe, uh, leave us a review, share us with a friend. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening again. And we'll talk to you soon.